Cabernet tends to be the sort of Errol Flynn of the great varieties. The most expensive beer in history. People will turn around to me and say, oh, I'm just making gin while I wait for my whiskey to get ready. Because wine is an adventure. Conventional winemakers who just condemn all natural wine as faulty. The prestigious title of Saki Samurai. Looking at whiskey in more of an artful culinary way. They kind of look at it as a novelty more than anything. The guy from the rock bands is making wine. This is the Drinks Adventures podcast. I'm James Atkinson, and this is the show where I speak to some of the world's most exciting producers of beer, wine and spirits and uncover trends and issues in the drinks industry today. Mr. Black Spirits was founded by distiller Philip Moore and coffee lover Tom Baker in 2013. The duo had the mission of bringing Australian coffee culture into the night with a high-quality liqueur that could take coffee cocktails to the next level. And it seems like they might be onto something. Mr. Black Cold Brew Coffee Liqueur has fast become the coffee liqueur of choice for some of the world's best bars and restaurants. It's the highest-selling Australian spirit in the USA and in 2021 was ranked as the number four top-trending liqueur in the world by Drinks International magazine. The company has a brilliant story and some exciting developments on the horizon that co-founder Tom Baker will share with you in just a moment. Tom Baker, thanks so much for joining us on the Drinks Adventures podcast. Thanks for having me, James. Good to be here, mate. Now, I don't know a whole lot about your background. I understand that you did have some liquor industry experience before you launched Mr Black. Where were you working before you decided to go out on your own? So I started life as a designer, um, like literally a packaging designer, doing a lot of work in new product development for like all the whole trinity of, of fast food, booze and cigarettes for seven years before starting Mr. Black. So we did a lot of work in coffee as well, but mostly for, for big liquor companies like Pernod, Diageo and Beam. And we worked all over the world, so in the US, Australia and, and Southeast Asia. And it was a lot of fun, a great job out of uni, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed it and got to see the world and make lots of great new things for, for new brands. And what made you decide to move out of that? It was back in 2014. I just wanted to build something. Like at the time we were doing so much work for so many booze companies and you expect in the agency world that not a lot of it comes, you know, ever gets to market. But these businesses were just so burdened by process and, and the thing that I, I I talk about it a lot. It's just like death by focus group. You know, you'd come up with something and then these things would just be focus group to the nth degree and just watered down until there was nothing of the original concept left. And, and that's why liquor stores wound up with so many products that were just the same and didn't really excite anyone until about seven years ago, you know, when the craft spirit revolution happened. Um, which has really forced these big guys to be a bit more interesting. But yeah, it was really just out of frustration for companies that weren't doing anything of value. So I thought, how hard can it be? I'll do it myself. Turns out, really hard. <laughs> but that was that was uh, seven years ago, a bit over seven years ago now. Um, yeah, and I just I wanted to know who. I was really interested in spirits and and just literally Googled who was making interesting stuff in the spirits world and came across Philip Moore from Distillery Botanica and walked in there one day in, in 2014 and, and then never left been there ever since. So yeah, it's been a crazy wild ride. I quit my job 1st of Jan 2015 um, and Mr. Buck's been my full-time job ever since then. So how did you, walking into Distillery Botanica, turn into launching a coffee liqueur brand? It's a really simple story. Like I thought Craft Gin was going to be 
a big thing. I had no intention of starting a business. I just wanted to know more about gin, right? So obviously went and spoke to Phil. And I was like, what do you do? You've got amazing products. Like you're not, you could like, have you ever met or tried anything from Distiller Britannica? Philip is, you know, an incredible distiller. Um, but he, all these products are only available at the cellar door. I was like, surely you must sell these other spots. He's like, no, oh, not really. And the most remarkable thing I tried that day was the coffee liqueur that he'd been working on. And obviously being a big coffee drinker and coffee nerd, I was just blown away by this product. The same reaction everyone has when they try it, which is like, holy fuck, what is this? You know, it's just so different and, and better. And I was like, mate, this, like, every person that likes coffee in the world is going to love this product. And he's like, oh, do you think? I was like, yeah, cool. So we gave it a name and we launched it online on this um, crowdfunding platform called Posible. We were the first company in the world to do that, to use a crowdfunding platform to launch a liquor company. All seems like a very, very long time ago now. That's the very early days of crowdfunding. Very early days of crowdfunding. And this is like, I think mean, Four Pillars did it after us, maybe four or five months after us. So we were early, early. Um, and yeah, but people loved it, you know, and, and we wanted to sell a couple hundred bottles just to pay for the first pound of glass and all that type of thing. But ended up selling 30 grand worth of booze, which for a 24-year-old was more money than I'd ever seen in my life, you know? So <laughs> that sort of gave us the gave us the motivation to think that this could be more than just a one-off thing, you know, that we'll drunk by my friends and family. Like, people, you know, really want it. So, yeah, did really well and sort of used that money and bootstrapped the business for a number of years to get it going. And so you sort of invested in the business with, with Philip yeah, and became partners? Exactly right. So we just set up a business, Mr. Black Spirits, PTYLTD, and, and started selling and... In the early years, we just had no idea about the liquor industry, no idea what to do. Um, I presumed you just made a bottle and put it on a shelf and then eventually, like, I don't know, Perno gave you a boat or a yacht or something, you know, but turns out there's a lot of stuff between starting a business and getting a yacht. Uh, still not sure when that comes, but I'm told sometime <laughs> in the future. Um, but no, no, generally had no idea what to do and thankfully, you know, we're able to meet a bunch of people and you know, Mitch Bushell, sort of this quite famous Australian bartender at the time, saw us online and picked us up and the amazing team at Vanguard, really, you know, um, boutique distributor here in Australia, picked up the brand and started distributing it and a bunch of retailers and bars got on board and, and just sort of went from there. And then, you know, that was sort of the first year and a half and I was like, well, maybe this has got legs internationally as well. So, yeah, that's when I sort of quit my job, quit being a hobby business and thought I'd put everything into Mr. Black. Now, there were some legacy coffee liqueur heaps brands on the market. Yeah. You know, the, the two that are most familiar to me are Tia Maria and Kahlua. Mm -hmm. How did the product that you tasted at Distillery Botanica differ to those existing brands? It's like, it's, it's chalk and cheese. I mean, they both say coffee and liqueur on them, but you wouldn't side by side, they're completely different products. It'd be like tasting a gin next to a whiskey, you know, like they're just completely different things. Mr. Black's made using real coffee and a, and, and a very large amount of it, um, far less sweet and with a neutral spirit base. So it just tastes like coffee, where a lot of these other legacy things don't. The premise of the brand is this. It's like the coffee that we drink now is very different to the coffee that we used to drink, right? The coffee industry has exploded you know, the proliferation of specialty coffee and just the average standard of a cup of coffee in the world has gone up a lot in the last decade. Coffee changed, but coffee liqueurs didn't. Unlike those legacy coffee liqueurs, you know, they're very big, um, very large brands, but they're very sweet and they taste nothing like the coffee that most people drink now. So that's where we come in. You know, people love coffee and coffee liqueurs is a great category. We just make one that tastes good. 
Um, and that's sort of, I don't know, tasting good is a niche, but that's sort of where we sort of came into. It was like, people love coffee. Let's just make a coffee liqueur that coffee drinkers want to drink. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're chocolate, very different products. Um, we're far less sweet, far more coffee forward. How's it made? Coffee, booze, water, sugar, you know, like all, all good things in the world. So all the flavour from Mr. Black comes from our coffee. We do everything from sourcing the coffees at Origin. So our head of coffee flies around the world, tries coffees, we import them. Uh, we roast the coffee and then we cold brew it. So we make like a really intense cup of coffee using a cold brew method, then blend it with um, grain-based ethanol from a company called Manildra on the south coast that make a lot of Australia's high-quality food-grade spirit. Um, and then sugar. So it sounds really simple, coffee, booze, water, sugar. It takes nine days from start to finish to make a bottle of Mr. Black, and we do everything from literally from sourcing coffee through the bottling. And the reason why that's important is all of the flavour in Mr. Black comes from coffee. We don't add any other vanilla, caramel, spices, E712, no, E number, you know, it's, it's literally just coffee in Mr. Black. And so all that flavour and nuance and depth and character that you get when you try Mr. Black, that lovely rich flavour, all comes from our coffee. So we have to make everything. And it's quite hard to make increasingly large amounts of consistently delicious, rich, deeply extracted coffee. And that's what we're good at, which is why we only make one thing. So does that mean that if you're trying to sort of get you know, complexity and layers of flavour and everything that you're, you're blending a lot of different coffees together in order to get that sort of structure that maybe those other brands just kind of throw spices in there instead? Absolutely. So, you know, broadly speaking, on any given batch, there's three coffees in Mr Black roasted four different ways. So we'll tend to use coffees that have those lovely, robust, caramelised, Maillard, lovely chocolatey coffees. We use coffees that have a high amount of fruit in them, so generally East African coffees um, from Kenya, Ethiopia, those lovely, rich, high-acid coffees. They're just gorgeous, and they really give Mr. Black the sparkle it needs. And then we'll tend to use stuff from East Asia as well, um, like Papua New Guinea and Southeast Asia, you know, lovely, citrusy, light, nuanced coffees in small amounts. So the coffees change throughout the year, as does where we source them from. But the easiest way to understand is just like really blending everything. We know what flavours we're looking for. We know broadly the characteristics of different regions and we blend them that way. Each coffee is different. They vary batch to batch. So a large amount of work that our head of coffee, um, who literally has a PhD in coffee, what he does is profiling coffees, testing them, trying them. No two batches of coffee that come in are identical. So we're always altering roast profiles. He just sits there and stares at graphs as these coffees develop as they roast and just working out how to get the best out of them. And again, we say craft, craft is still a lot, but I mean, it's all science. You know, we measure everything. We're like a third decimal point company. Like everything is going to get measured at every step, whether that's moisture, degree of roast, colour of roast, you know, pH, you know, dissolved solids in your wall, all that type of everything gets measured. Um, and we've been doing that for seven years. So we have like a wealth of data about how to produce the product. When you had the product that you were happy with, how did you set about, you know, seeing how it was going to play in drinks? Yeah, so that was, that was a, it's a really interesting one. So I honestly had like no idea about one cocktail culture in general or what was happening in you know, in, in that sort of side of hospitality prior to starting in Mr. Black. Like I just wasn't, wasn't engaged in it. And the second one, second thing, I had no idea about how people were going to drink Mr. Black. I just thought it was delicious and people should drink it. I had no real concept of how, how it makes its way into the glass. But when we started, we literally just had a bottle 
of booze and just walked in the bars, you know, and me and our lovely sales guys and just walked in and bartenders thankfully could have just put it on the shelf and let it go dusty or not bought it. But they made amazing drinks with it. So early on, again, from a zero cocktail knowledge going into bars and especially I remember this amazing time we went into Rockpool Bar and Grill uh, in Sydney and they're like, oh, have you ever had like a Negroni with coffee? I mean, that'd be delicious, wouldn't it? I was like, well, I've never had a Negroni, so let's have one of them and then try it with Mr. Black. And it was stunning, you know? And it really like sparked something in my brain that coffee cocktails don't have to be like Irish coffees or mudslides or whatever, you know, the cocktail and culture was doing with coffee at the time. Coffee could be nuanced, you know, it could be a flavour as opposed to a liqueur. It could be a bitter as opposed to just some sweet, fatty liqueur, which is what a lot of them were. So, yeah, what we, the creativity that we saw bartenders exhibit with our product was amazing and that fuels the whole strategy, really. Like, we're a product that's using cocktails around the world. What were the biggest challenges that you faced early on with kind of essentially creating a new, a new category of spirit? The challenges with creating a new spirit, really interesting. So when you're new and you're in liqueurs, it's a really tricky thing because you have all the baggage of the liqueur category, right? People, oh, liqueurs, that's like what my grandma used to drink. You know, a lot of people, like it's just drinking coffee and liqueur isn't even in their repertoire. Like, you know, as I think a bartender said to me once when I walked in, he's like, oh, artisanal coffee liqueur, is that what the industry is doing now, right? You know, finally, have we got to that point, you know? Um, but when you start, you've still got all that baggage. But the best part of being liqueur is, um, yeah, Mr. Black, we don't have to be a coffee liqueur. We're just Mr. Black, you know? So it sort of gave us this blank canvas to project on that what we want. You know, you start an Australian whiskey, you're very much in that Australian whiskey category, right? But when you're just a liqueur, we can be whatever we want to be and, and it allowed us to be Mr. Black. So what was baggage for us at the start, you know, being seen as this old dusty product in an old dusty category, really was a challenge. Getting people to reconsider it was just really difficult because most people were like, look, I'm not interested in coffee and liqueurs. My customers aren't interested in it. Why should I buy from you? And then you talk to them, they try it, they get what we're about. Now, seven years later, they sell a bunch of it. So it worked quite well. But yeah, getting going in a new category you know, that people aren't particularly interested in, huge challenge, but quite useful when you get a bit bigger and people understand what you are and you really carve out this niche for yourself. Super useful. You must have really ridden the wave of the espresso martini over the last few years. Can't understate its importance, right? Like it, it, it's huge, you know, and, and ultimately for a business, it's this sweet spot where I have all that stuff I just said about we can craft this new lovely brand for ourselves, but conveniently Australians and increasingly Americans and Europeans love espresso martinis. You know, it's a genuine bona fide modern classic cocktail that's consumed in you know, huge volumes around the world and uh, it tastes phenomenal when it's made with Mr. Black. So massively been a beneficiary of that. And I don't have a specific number, but, you know, 90% of the Mr. Black drunk in bars in Australia would be by way of an espresso martini, you know, it's great. And, and, and we have an important role to play there. You know, when these things get big, they get commoditized, brands launch terrible tap systems or pre-mixed RTDs, which are just terrible. And that's what ruins categories, happens in the wine industry, happens in the spirits industry. You know, as soon as something gets big, the big guys get into it and commoditize it and, and ruin it, right? So we've got a really important role to play in keeping up this drink and making it good. We have a very vested interest in making sure that the quality stays high and people keep buying them. But yeah, huge. They're massive here in Australia and all over the world. Now, I tried 
and was really impressed with your um, Ethiopia single origin, which came out recently. Tell me about that single origin series. Uh, what was the background to it and what sort of contrast is there between these different liqueurs? So if like, you know, we think like coffee liqueur is a niche of the liquor industry, I think single origin coffee liqueurs are like a niche on a niche, right? But part of like, part of the reason we exist is to show the liquor world that coffee is more than just a mono flavor. You know, coffee was, oh, there's coffee liqueurs, you know, where it's not. The world of coffee is, is incredibly diverse. You know, there's more flavors in coffee than there are in red wine, right? It's, you know, it's a very broad church of flavor. Um, and we can tell people that, like I'm now, you know, and go and tell bartenders, or we can make it. And that was really the, the reason behind the single origin products was just showing people the diversity and flavoring coffee. The Ethiopian release specifically, it's almost a bit cheating, like, because the Ethiopian coffees are just stunning. Ethiopia is the spiritual, it's the actual birthplace of coffee. It's where coffee came from. But Ethiopian coffees are just stunning. They're high in acid, super bright and fruity and, tea-like and there's a reason why they cost four times as much as Colombian coffees do. They're just gorgeous. So um, doing single origin year releases with Kenyan or, or, or Ethiopian coffee, it's just a treat for us to do. I get their niche, you know, um, and but the remarkable thing is like how much people love them. You know, we do three or four a year and they sell out. You know, people just absolutely love what we make. We buy a batch of coffee, we make them. Um, I think it still blows people's minds to do a tasting of two coffee liqueurs, a category or a product that maybe people hadn't thought about to try these two things side by side made the same way. The only difference in the product is the coffee and they taste so different. And it helps, I think, recalibrate people's brains about what we do. But they're delicious, right? Like it's, it's just absolutely stunning. What's the difference in how those are made versus the original Mr. Black? So made the same way, different coffee and different roast profiles. So our classic Mr. Black, that trademark iconic Mr. Black flavor is that lovely dark chocolatey Maillard flavor. You know, really come medium and dark roast, really get that lovely intense coffee flavor. The um, single origin series, all lighter. So we show off less of the roast profiles that we do and more of the coffees that we use. So same process, made the same way, same extraction, same blend, everything after the coffee is the same, we just change the coffees. So much lighter roast, shows off the bean more than the roast profile. Now, you guys have been in America for quite a while now. We um, have. How's that gone? Because, you know, I've travelled there up until recently, I was travelling there a fair bit. Yeah. Uh, and I've really noticed how much the coffee culture has really evolved extremely quickly over there in cities like, you know, New York and Portland and LA and and everything. So that must have it must have been a good time to go into the states. Yeah, exporting in general is really hard, right? Like, and I, I talk to a lot of small companies, and they always, you know, oh, how do we get into the US or how do we get in the UK? It's really difficult, and you can really count on one hand the amount of privately owned, you know, uh, international spirits companies that brands that have have worked in the US. Like, it's really difficult to do. So why the US, apart from the fact they, you know, it's a big country that spends a lot of money on premium spirits, they were just, they're going through their coffee renaissance. You know, it's like London 10 years ago. It's like, you know, Australia 20, 30 years ago. You know, they're just absolutely embracing coffee culture. And when you come late to something, you don't benchmark yourself off. I mean, they all benchmark themselves off Australian coffee shops, right? You know, Australia is the home of modern coffee culture. I think that's not in question. But when you want to, 
you know, steal with pride. You don't look at the bad coffee shops in Australia, you look at the good ones, right? So they've come into coffee culture quite late, but they've done really well. And because they have no historical ties to drinking coffee, they're incredibly innovative in the types of products they drink, including cold brew. And cold brew, like specifically, is prolific in the US. They're just massive cold brew drinkers, which is crazy because we don't, despite being a very hot country, we don't drink a lot of cold brew in Australia. So kind of this perfect storm of they have a lot of cocktail culture over there, they love spirits, um, but cold brew is a thing to them. And being a cold brew coffee liqueur, that sort of gave them a point, Americans a point of reference to say, oh, we are different to the category. So all those sort of stars aligned, we thought the US would be a good opportunity. It's an incredibly difficult market to, to win in. It's, it's so expensive to play. Um, it, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. But when it gets going, you know, it gets going in a big way and is now you know, much bigger than our Australian business. But that's taken yeah, almost four years now of, of blood, sweat, tears and money to get that to work. But yeah, they love it. The product will absolutely work there. Just the flavour profile works really for works really well for them. And just that proposition around cold brew just really works well with the Americans. And in places you wouldn't think, like Florida's our biggest state in the US, you know, for sales. New York you know, pre in the before times, you know, pre-pandemic was the biggest one, all driven by the amazing cocktail culture there. But post-COVID, it's all Florida, all retail sales. So it's, um, yeah, it's going really well, but certainly not without its challenge over the last 12 months. When you and I were speaking recently, you were telling me that you actually ended up growing fairly significantly last year in spite of COVID. How did you manage that? We couldn't have been in the worst spot for COVID. Like, if you look our, our February was bigger than now December, you know, in the US, which is rare in the liquor industry. Normally sell a bunch of booze at Christmas. But our growth in, in the on-premise in bars was just extraordinary. Like literally thousands of bars were just putting Mr. Black coffee cocktails on their menus. Um, and to lose all that in, in March and to see our friends' bars close, it was just, I mean, tragic, you know, to watch all everything that we'd worked for, you know, disappear overnight literally in March, uh, and, and all our friends' bars and you know, business partners over there disappeared. was horrible. Um, but unlike a bar, we had our ability to sort of work our way out of it. You know, we could still sell just through different channels. So the team just hustled, and we just turned from being a really bar-focused brand, the one that we had no choice but to win in retail. So thankfully, a lot of buyers in the US happened like Mr. Black almost as much as I do and gave us a shot and get, got the product on the shelf. And, you know, we turned from being you know, 80% on-premise in the US to completely the opposite, um, 80% retail. So we're now distributed nationally in the US with Bebmo and Total Wine and ABC and Walmart and Walgreens and all these huge brands decided to get Mr. Black on the shelves and sold really well. So... Um, yeah, it wasn't by accident. You know, we get you get nothing for free as an Aussie in the UK, Aussie in the US. You know, you have to work for it, and the team just hustled, and and we managed to turn it around. But it was crippling in March just to see the sales drop to, you know, drop to almost nothing. I think in March we, I forget I forget the number, but like a double digit number of cases sold in April in the US for us from a quite a big February. So it was just extraordinary to watch that everything we'd worked for for three years or two years in the US just disappear overnight. But we turned it around and wound up even in spite of COVID, you know, a long way up on the previous year, which was great to see and forced us online and, you know, use that pivot word a lot to try and work out how we connect with new drinkers. And we still had to engage in cocktail culture, but 
in a completely different way. So we have large partnerships with YouTubers now and at-home mixology is a thing and online training and new media and podcasts and all this stuff became our world. Um, and we hope to visit our friends in bars soon. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, crazy year. Not one I want to repeat anytime soon. How are you going to accommodate that growth in terms of, you know, production capacity? Have you seen our distillery by any chance? I haven't, but I've... It's I, I, tiny. Yeah. So it's like we effectively make Mr. Black in like a driveway in there and there, you know, it's, <laughs> it's covered, and but yeah. it's, it's not a big space. So most people are amazed at how much liquid we make in such a small space. And Mr. Black, we've never, I mean, you know... Um, but then your actual distillery... What, what are you actually distilling? There? So we don't distill. Yeah. Um, so it is a, a neutral a, a, grain a, Yeah, exactly yeah. right. So we, we do require the ability to distill because we make some distillates for some products, like Awamaro, for instance, um, does use botanical distillates in it. So we'll always require that capacity. But broadly, to make Mr. Black, no distill. It, it's it's um, bought in ethanol. Um, we just require a lot of room, which we don't have. So we need to move out of our current distillery. It's It's vastly too small for our requirements. Um, but as with these things, when you're a startup, it's not a matter of choice. Like we just have finite resources and I'd love to build the shiny new thing, but we certainly this year, we didn't really have the option to do that. You know, um, we had to make some tough decisions on a lot of things this year, but excitingly in 2021, we're building a new site in Hunter Valley, partly to be near the wine industry, all that talent that that brings with it. Uh, all our suppliers are up there as well. Um, so that'll be happening mid this year, which is exciting. So purpose-built facility to accommodate our new growth that's happened, um, which will be great. We'll see how long this one lasts before we need to move out of that as well. But hopefully we'll get a few years before that becomes too small. Will people be able to visit? Initially, no. It'll be just a facility to produce Mr. Black. Um, we're a tiny company. Like, I just don't have the capacity, you know, in our team. Like, our ops team is 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 very small. So the idea of building both a, a, a production facility and cellar door and all that while trying to manage growth overseas was just too much for us this year. So we will eventually. Um, and probably when we do, it won't necessarily be the brewing and blending part that we show off. It'll be the coffee part, right? So that's the bit I'm personally really excited about, about building you know, the church of coffee, our cellar door, and really showing people the process starting from the coffee, not just showing some tanks with liquid in them. So that might well happen towards the end of this year as well, if not next year. What else is coming up for you this year in terms of, uh, you know, are there any new products you can talk about or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, absolutely. We've got a lot of fun stuff. I'm pretty transparent about what we've got coming out. So a bunch of new single origin products, which is great. Really, really exciting for us is our American team did a lot of work with the guys at quite a large whiskey um, sort of prolific whiskey company in the US, which I can't name, but that will come out soon. So we've had product in rye whiskey casks for nine months. Um, so we'll be doing a barrel aged product, which again, coffee and whiskey is just such an amazing flavor combination. Easily my favorite drink, a cold or old fashioned, like equal parts rye whiskey and Mr. Black. It's just so good. So yeah, we've got some barrel aged products coming out. And this year we're doing our first foray into RTD. So we've spent a year developing a ready to drink um, a canned product. Doing anything in coffee is really hard. It's really susceptible to oxygen and, you know, uh, bacterial issues and mal um, um, lactic ferments and all that. So creating really good coffee RTDs is, is hard, which is why there aren't any good ones. We've made a good one. Uh, so that should be coming out mid-year as well. It's beautiful. It tastes amazing. We've got a few final technical hurdles to get through. 
uh, but that should be coming out mid-year. So a, a bunch of fun stuff this year. Like what kind of? Oh, it's coffee uh, in a can, mate. You'll have to wait and see. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a, a ready-to-drink product. Okay. So super exciting. So that'll be mid-year. But by the time we do some single origins, are ready to drink and build a new distillery, I think that'll max out our capacity um, for this year in terms of new stuff we can do. Going to be fun though. Oh, and a barrel-aged product. Well, Tom, been a really great chat. Thanks for your time. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Drinks Adventures podcast is produced by me, James Atkinson, with additional production and mixing by Dave Robertson. You can find complete transcripts, links, and other information on the show at drinksadventures.com.au. You can follow me on all social media platforms at by James Atkinson. Like my Facebook page, James Atkinson Drinks Adventures, to be kept informed of podcast giveaways and other news about the show. The Drinks Adventures podcast needs your support as listeners. Please do us a favour and leave an honest review and rating for the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. We love hearing your feedback and it helps inform other people this is a show worth listening to. Or simply drop us a line at hello at drinksadventures.com.au.